Amen. Thanks. You guys can have a seat. Thank you, Philip. Awesome. Well, last week we looked at Psalm 75, which was about God's coming deliverance of his people. And this week we consider Psalm 76, which looks back at the very events that Psalm 75 was likely drawing Israel's mind to. Uh, You could see the two Psalms as an artistic telling of both sides of the story, both the hoping for and the celebration of God's deliverance. Uh, the Psalms, as a collection of, of poems and songs and prayers, serve a lot of purposes for ancient Israel. And here we get to see a few of those purposes illustrated. Psalm 75 and 76 were a way of celebrating God's judgment of one of Israel's enemies and his deliverance of his people. Particularly, there's pretty strong evidence in oral tradition that Psalm 76, which we're meditating on today, was written about a time when God protected Israel from Sennacherib, who became king of Assyria and ruled in Nineveh during Hezekiah's reign from 704 to 681 BC. And we're going to read about that in a little bit from 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, you can go ahead and turn to 2 Kings chapter 18. Um, maybe keep it. A... All right. This is going to be fun. It's going to be fun to have this team here. Uh, so, uh, yeah, second Kings, uh, chapter 18, and then just maybe keep your hand in, uh, Psalm 76 because we'll be, we'll be back there too. Uh, Psalm 76 is about the specific moment in history that Asaph, the writer of the Psalm wants us to remember, but it's also a way that Asaph is teaching us and reminding us about who God is and what he's like and how he relates to his people throughout all time. So there's an event that's being remembered in particular, but there are also principles that are being illustrated in general. And that's why in Ephesians 5, Paul's giving instructions for how to live, not as unwise, but as wise brothers and sisters, as children of the Lord. And he exhorts the the church to be filled with the Spirit. In Ephesians 5.19, he says, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So the psalms are intended to help us remember what God has done and to know what he's like and also to help us live and relate to God and to one another. So music has this way of helping us remember truth, doesn't it? Like we just sang uh, a song that you probably all knew by heart, but it was actually like just quoting a couple of psalms, right? Um, we, we said, your, your love is running after me. Well, it's just quoting from, surely the goodness and mercy of the Lord will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, right? So we're just, music has this way of helping truth stick in our head and also of helping our heads and our hearts connect. Okay, now there, there's definitely some trash music out there being sung in churches all over this country today, but good church music should do that for us. It should help our heads and our hearts connect around the great truths of who God is and what he's done and what he's doing and what he will do, praise God. 
If you ask me what makes a good song for the church to sing, I'd say it needs to be true, deep, and singable. And best, if it's beautiful too, that honors our beautiful, creative Savior, best of all. Too many songs today are either beautiful, but not at all deep. So we learn nothing of what God is like, and they therefore lose their effectiveness to help us live more in line with God's will. Or they're deep enough, but they just aren't good songs. Either they're not singable, or they aren't beautiful. Uh, or worst of all, the third type, maybe they're, they're good musically, but they just simply aren't true. Uh, of the three, I think we've most commonly accepted the norm of songs that are technically true, they're not heretical, but they just aren't that deep. They don't offend us, but they don't challenge us to know God more intimately either. They just aren't that deep. But good church music is true, deep, singable, and beautiful. Bob Coughlin says, and I think we have this up on the screen, uh, Bob Coughlin says that music stirs up and expresses God-glorifying emotion. It helps us reflect the glory and activity of the triune God. It helps us remember truth about God, and it helps us express our unity in the gospel. So here we find ourselves reading a song, Psalm 76, that's supposed to do all that for Israel. Don't be too quick to dismiss it if you came to this passage and didn't get it right away. This is one of the songs in Jesus's hymnal, and it definitely would have done these very things for him. This psalm is a deep well that invites us to look beyond the surface and see God in his glory, his power, his righteousness, and to praise him because he is mighty to save and worthy of our praise. Okay, so Asaph is calling us to remember a specific event which God deserves praise for, but he's also teaching us some important truths about the God who was at work in that event. And so we're going to briefly look at both the specific and the abstract today. Uh, and for my part, I've been super encouraged by both. Uh, when I first came to this psalm, I thought it was very weird. Uh, and maybe you did too. Philip was reading and you're like, what are we going to talk about today? But now I I've really grown to love this psalm. And my prayer for us today is that as we come to understand this passage better, we would fall more in love, ultimately, more in love with Jesus. So let's look at the, the context. What was Asaph singing about? In 2 Kings 18, uh, we read that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, has come up against Hezekiah. All right, Hezekiah is the king of Judah, and uh, Sennacherib takes all the fortified cities of Judah. So Hezekiah is like, whoa, I don't want to fight you, bro. Uh, just tell me whatever it takes to get you to back down, and I'll do that. So he does, and Hezekiah ends up paying just this huge sum of gold and silver. Uh, he empties out the treasury of the temple and literally like strips the gold leaf adornments off the pillars of the building. So that's the equivalent of like a king uh, getting down and looking under the couch cushions for change to put gas in the tank, right? Like he's, he's finding every little bit of change that he can find to pay this guy off. Uh, but maybe you know how it is to deal with a bully. It's never quite enough. So Sennacherib is like, cool, now that you're broke because you gave me all your money and you can't afford to hire any help, and he sends some guys to basically taunt the people of Israel, uh, trying to get them to a place where 
they don't trust their own king, Hezekiah, so that they would just like give up and become really not much better than slaves of Sennacherib, but uh, that they would give him their land, which God had given to them, or else he's going to kill them because they're broken. They can't afford to defend themselves anymore. So we pick up in 2 Kings 18, uh, starting in verse 22, okay? So some of this stuff has gone down. They're surrounding Jerusalem, all right? And Sennacherib's goons are shouting over the wall into Jerusalem, okay? And so he says, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. Okay, so he's basically saying like, I'm making these threats. And if your response is going to be like, no, we're good because we've got God on our side, right? So listen to what he's going to say about that. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? Saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship, worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them. He's basically saying, like, you're not even strong enough. If I gave you horses, you couldn't fight me. And how then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Basically, like, you don't have your own army. Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Now, let's pause there for a second. Uh, this guy just said that God sent him to destroy Jerusalem. And that's an outrageous claim on its own. Uh, not to mention a blatant lie meant to mock the people of Israel who claimed regularly to hear from God. I mean, our entire faith system is built upon the belief that God has in fact spoken his will to his people, and that his words are written here in the Bible. And so here comes a guy challenging God's chosen people, saying, God sent me here to do this work. If you're using God's name, if you're telling someone that God told you to do or to say something, you had better be dang sure that he really told you to do it, that his word corroborates your actions, because he hates it. When people use his name to justify doing just whatever they want to do. And he'll only tolerate that kind of misuse of his honor for so long, which is what we're about to see in our story. Uh, but I digress. Let, let's get back to it. Okay, so these guys go on yelling into Jerusalem, 2 Kings 18, uh, picking up in verse 28. Then Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. And this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of you his own fig tree each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. Doesn't he make slavery sound really nice? And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad, the gods of Sephiroth, Hena, and Eva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? 
Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? And the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? You see what he's saying? Jehovah, our God, is just like all the other made-up gods that these other nations serve. And we beat all them. Your God isn't special. Our king is stronger than your God. But of course, that's not true. Our God is the king of kings. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time this morning to read the whole story, so I would encourage you to check out all of 2 Kings 19, uh, but we're just going to skip across it really quickly to drive towards the end. So here's what we find uh, as we take a quick summary of the chapter. Hezekiah and all the people are super upset, but Hezekiah says, hold on, these guys were just mocking God. I bet that God heard that and didn't like it. So let's pray for God's help, and the people do it, okay? So they pray. Uh, even though the enemy said, don't even ask God for help. Like, he's not going to be able to save you. Well, they do it anyway. They go to God, and God answers through the prophet Isaiah. And God says he hears them, and he's going to deliver them. And then the story gets really crazy. And so we're going to pick it back up in 2 Kings 19, verse 35. Okay, so the very night that God speaks through Isaiah, it says, and that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. He's like, oh, getting out of here. And he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god. Adrimelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with a sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Eshradad, his son, reigned in his place. So just like that, they mocked God, and then boom, he sent the angel of the Lord and killed 185,000 of them in their sleep. They didn't stand a chance, literally just woke up dead. And then Sennacherib goes home to his God and gets killed by his own sons in his God's house. So don't miss the dramatic irony of the story. His people say that God isn't strong enough to save Judah in their own homes, but God saves them and then kills their enemy in his God's house. Like, whose God's the weak one now, Sennacherib, is basically the point that God's making. And that is what Asaph is singing about in Psalm 76. So if you'll turn back there, we get to look at this psalm and ask, what would Asaph have intended to teach through the song besides just that history of his people and their God. But we also are privileged to get a more enlightened view of this passage because Messiah, Jesus, has already come. The New Testament tells us that Jesus showed his disciples how all the law and the prophets testified of him. So we get to interpret this psalm in light of our illuminated position in history, whereas the psalm was written five or 600 years before Jesus was born, we get to see it for what it really was in light of our salvation in Christ. Now, earlier, I said that good church music should be true and deep, and this song is certainly that. We're praising God for some things that uh, we just don't normally get to sing about today, Right? Like, y'all should be afraid of our God. He cuts off the spirit of princes. That's not like something that gets worked into praise choruses all that often. Uh, so let's check this psalm out together. It's true, it's deep, 
and it calls us to understand and celebrate together who God is, literally to praise him better because we know him better and have more to praise him for. Uh, The psalm is divided into four stanzas. We're not going to read the whole thing again. Philip already read it for us. Uh, It will be, each stanza will be up on the screen as we talk through these, uh, and we'll kind of just reference some of what is, what's really being communicated here. So as you're following along, even though I won't read every verse, like, please like, soak it in and meditate on it. Um, but this first stanza tells us, in a nutshell, that God has made himself known, or better yet, that God has revealed himself as present among his people by delivering them. Okay? The second stanza shows us that God is glorious beyond everyone and everything. This part of the song is about God's supremacy. It says that he's stronger than the strongest warriors. It says in verse 6, literally, that at his rebuke, both the rider and the horse lay stunned. These strong warriors are just frozen. Remember, woke up dead. like They didn't even have a chance when they came face to face with the greatness of God. The third stanza tells us that God is just. He will crush evildoers and vindicate the humble. He certainly did it for Judah when he killed Sennacherib's army, but his justice isn't here restricted to Judah. Asaph says that God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Now, we're going to circle back to that idea in just a minute, but just make note of it that the principle here is that God will save all the humble of the earth and exact judgment against all his enemies. Now, the fourth and final stanza, this is where Asaph really digs in and gets his hands dirty a bit theologically. Uh, It's like the crescendo of the song has finally climaxed, and he goes, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. And the first couple times I read that, I was like, bro, what? Like, that is so weird. And and I really had to meditate on it and get some extra counsel on this one, because that's a strange thing to say. But what I think the verse is saying is that God is so mighty that he takes something terrible, like the wrath of man, and he turns it around to make it serve his purposes. He says that man's wrath will praise God. Like these enemies just think that they're doing something. But really God is ultimately going to bend the will of evildoers to serve his divine purposes. He puts on the wrath of man like a belt, just a tool that he can use however he wants. B.B. Warfield said that the point of this verse ultimately is that the wrath of man also is under divine control. And it too, like all else that occurs in the world, conduces only to the divine glory. Now that's a well-supported principle throughout Scripture, but I'm just going to point us to two places today. First, in Genesis 50, Joseph had been sold into slavery by his brothers, landed in prison because he wouldn't sleep with his master's wife, and then eventually, after a long time in jail, He ends up as the top advisor to Pharaoh. His brothers come to look for help during a terrible famine, and he tells them who he is. And they're like, oh, no, he's going to kill us because of what we did to him. But instead, he says, as for you, 
you meant evil against me. Right? It wasn't good that you sold me into slavery. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Notice the language there. He doesn't say God turned it around for good. He said God meant it for good. So simultaneously, you have the will of man and the will of God both acting and moving forward. He says, you meant that for evil. Simultaneously, God meant it for good, right? That should blow our minds that our God is that big and that strong and that powerful. Second example from the New Testament this time, one of Jesus's best friends betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. The betrayal resulted in Jesus's murder, an unjust, unlawful execution. Uh, one of my favorite songwriters, Bob Dylan, wrote, through many a dark hour, I've been thinking about this, that Jesus Christ was betrayed by a kiss. But I can't think for you, so you'll have to decide whether Judas Iscariot had God on his side. See, what Judas did was evil. What the people did to Jesus by killing him was evil. And yet, God used the greatest evil of all time, freely chosen by hearts of stone set against obeying the will of God, the wrath of man, and God uses it, intends it even, to bring about the greatest good of all time. What Judas and the people who crucified Jesus meant for evil, God meant for good. To bring it about that many people should be saved as they are today. Praise God. Amen? Okay, so we're driving at the meaning of this final stanza in our psalm, but let's linger on it just a little longer. Because remember the third stanza said that God saves the humble, but also that he's establishing judgment. And then here in verse 11, it says that God is to be feared. There's even an implication in verse 10 that God has wrath that he puts on like a belt. Like, it implies some ownership. Not just that it's man's wrath, but that God has wrath. If we don't deal with that uncomfortable truth, we miss the glory of this entire passage. We've got to get over being uncomfortable or apologetic or ashamed of the fact that God, who is perfect and good, is a God of wrath. Francis Chan said in his book, Erasing Hell, like the nervous kid who tries to keep his friends from seeing his drunken father, I have tried to hide God at times. Who do I think I am? The truth is, God is perfect and right in all that he does. I am a fool for thinking otherwise. He does not need nor want me to cover for him. There's nothing to be covered. Everything about him and all he does is perfect. It's perfect. And here's the deal. God gets mad. We see Jesus drive out money changers who turn the court of the Gentiles into a marketplace, basically making it impossible for the Gentiles to draw near to God because they were doing business in the place where they should have been gathering. And Jesus literally flips over their tables and dumps their money out all over the place and runs them off with a whip. That's not something that happens mildly. He wasn't just upset. Jesus was furious. We have this idea that anger as an emotion is wrong and only wrong in and of itself. 
But the character of our God tells us otherwise. We think that way because we are fallen sinful beings. And in our anger, we find it difficult or even impossible not to sin in anger. But God, in His perfection, even commands us in Ephesians 4 that when we get mad, we should be angry and yet without sin. God can be angry and not sin, implying that there is a way even for us to be angry and not sin. In the same address to his students that I quoted earlier, B.B. Warfield called that kind of anger without sin outraged love. I just love that. Let's let's listen to this whole uh, quote. He said, love is the great solvent. And love is the bond of peace. Where love is, their wrath will difficultly live. And only that wrath, which is after all outraged love, can easily assert itself. But so long as there is wrongdoing in the world, so long will there be a place in the world for righteous indignation. And there is much wrongdoing in the world that we live in today. And I'll just say it's normal and right for us to experience a godly kind of anger, an outraged love, when we see a man treated poorly because of the color of his skin, or a woman abused and then abandoned, then abused some more by her husband. Wars and genocide and abortion and rape should make our blood boil with holy anger. And yet, we should in our anger not sin. Uh, But it is very much the character of God to be a God of wrath, whose just condemnation is coming against all who sin against Him. God is just and right and good in His fierce anger against sin because His anger is rooted in His love for His people. His wrath is an outraged love. It is an eternal, righteous indignation. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. That's what, what comes with it, right? The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, all of us have rejected God's sovereignty, His authority. And because of that, we deserve God's wrath. Uh, David Platt uh, contributed to a book, super cool if you're digging into the Psalms. Uh, it's called Exalting Jesus in Psalms 51 to 100. He put it this way. He said, we have looked into the face of God who is sovereign over all, and just like Assyria, we have denounced His rule and reign over our lives. This is the God who speaks to creation, and everything obeys his bidding, except when it comes to us. You and I have the nerve to look God in the face and say, no, we think we know what is best for our life. Let's not make any mistakes. Romans 1.18 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God is good. God is great, and God is right to pour out his eternal wrath against sinners. And that is bad news for all of us. But the Bible has some good news, too. Remember that in our psalm, verse 9 says, God arose to establish judgment 
That's bad. And to save all the humble of the world. Uh, there's an old blues song by the Chambers Brothers that says, people get ready, there's a train coming. You don't need no baggage, just get on board. All you need is faith to hear the diesels humming. Don't need no ticket, you just thank the Lord. Ephesians 2, 4-9 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Mm. Okay, so what's this last stanza of the psalm about? Remember why Asaph is writing the song? God delivered Judah from the Assyrians after they mocked God and claimed that their king was stronger than God. And I just don't, I don't want to move too far past that. We do that in our own hearts all the time. But Asaph celebrates that in the face of Assyria's defiance, God made an embarrassment of their army, their king and his God. Asaph says in... Uh, verse 12, that God cuts off the spirit of princes. God is to be feared by the kings of the earth. This last stanza reminds us that God is the ultimate authority, the king of kings, and all of his creation serves him whether willingly or even unknowingly. I was sitting in the backyard with my family Thursday night uh, just this week, just talking together, hanging out, and uh, we had had some dinner with the Finkies. Uh, Mercy was in the neighborhood, so she stopped by to chat. We're just hanging out, and we were talking about this idea. Uh, and eventually, I said to Graham, my oldest son, uh, who was, he was really trying to work it out, how God could operate this way, because it is such a colossal idea that God is sovereign. He reigns supreme over all things and events. And I just eventually said that God is always working, and we, he can work through us, or he can work in spite of us. But nothing we can do can stop him from doing what he wants, ultimately. And I think that's the point of this last stanza in our psalm this morning. And so verse 11 is a right response to that concept. That we should commit our lives to God's care and leadership, serve him, and fear or reverence him in his holiness. That's where our heart should be drawn to. So I'm going to ask the band to uh, come back up to the stage now and for our prayer volunteers to come on forward as we uh, just round the corner here on the end. Um, these folks will be here on the front corners to help guide you and pray for you as we're responding together. So please, uh, as we sing, feel free to pull one of them aside and ask for prayer uh, for help with whatever the Lord may be laying on your heart this morning as you consider this passage. Uh, God tells us not just to be hearers of the word only, but doers also. You may be brand new to Christianity, or you may have walked with the Lord for many years. Either way, the truth demands a response. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, nobody ever outgrows scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. So uh, my prayer is that each and every one of us would ask the Lord for fresh, clear direction 
on how it is he would have us to respond to these truths. Uh, As we do, I want to offer a few possible responses, not an exhaustive list. So please petition the Lord, how would you have me act in light of this? Um, Not an exhaustive list, but surely the Spirit is moving in some of our hearts in at least these three ways. The first is celebration. The psalm teaches us that God is infinitely worthy of our praise. So we celebrate him for who he is. And we're going to get an opportunity here in a moment to do that, to sing and shout for joy at his greatness and his nearness. The second response is repentance. This psalm forces us to deal with our own sinfulness. David Platt said that Psalm 76 reminds us that we've denied God's glory and denounced his sovereignty. We've failed to fear God and we've dared to judge God. And for all those reasons, we are infinitely deserving of God's wrath. We need to repent, to confess our sins to God and turn from them. And in case you heard that and you thought, oh yeah, I did that, I've been baptized, the whole thing. We, we are in a continual, perpetual state of needing to evaluate our own hearts and lives and ask the question, Lord, what would you have me to repent from, to turn away from, in order that we can more fully wrap our arms around Jesus? And then finally, faith. Because we're all infinitely deserving of God's wrath, we need God to save us from God. We are helpless to save ourselves. But that's okay, because God will save all the humble of the earth. Remember the story of Hezekiah and Sennacherib. The ones in that story who thought they were strong, capable, the ones who could deliver themselves, they all died in a single night. But the ones who realized their helplessness and cried out to God to come to their rescue they were delivered. And they didn't do anything to deserve it or earn it. God fought for them. So stop acting like you can pull yourself up by your own moral bootstraps. It's just not possible. The damage of our sin is already done. And we need Jesus to heal us. He died in our place so that all who believe in him will be saved. So submit your life fully to Jesus today. He is the King of Kings, and he wants to be the King of your life to work through you instead of in spite of you. So submit your life to Jesus by faith today. Let's pray. Holy Father, you are good and kind to us to give us so many examples.